0: you now to please turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In the last chapter, the Apostle Paul speaks of giving up his rights for the sake of the gospel to win the lost to Christ. But now he turns gear, shifts gears to provide a warning to the lesson of Israel's history, to warn the church by the dangers of idolatry and the temptations that come with it. His message is is to the strong and to the weak, to those who are given to presumption, to ignore their vulnerability, as well as to those who struggle with doubts, overwhelmed by many fears. May we heed the message of of our text to learn from the examples of our forefathers that we might escape similar trappings the temptation to sin. I read 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. That is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. This is God's word. Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts may be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. A couple weeks ago, my family rented a cabin uh, for about four nights, a couple hours north, not far from Ricketts Glen State Park, for a time of hiking. And uh, upon my return, someone in the church asked me if I had had a restful and relaxing time away. And I just kind of half-jokingly replied, well, in a cabin with seven children is is not exactly restful and relaxing, although it was quite fun. You know, long car trips or cabin fever, vacation times, or even just close encounters with family and others can be breeding grounds to the temptation to sin. But my experience and our experiences collectively hardly compare, I believe, to the trials and temptations faced by God's people who fled Egypt, who found themselves in the wilderness for many decades, and who entered into hostile territory in the land of Canaan, quite similar to modern-day refugees. Paul goes on to offer us not merely a nice history lesson, like a bus tour through the Amish country. Rather, he takes the believer's situation in Corinth and offers it in a redemptive historical context— to draw a parallel between their forefathers, those who faced great trials and temptations long ago, and applied it to people today, as we face similar temptations to unbelief. And I believe that Paul's message is just as applicable for us today. Two millennia after this letter was originally written, our circumstances differ. But our temptations are the same. To doubt God's goodness, to question his provision, to feel like yielding to temptation is our only option. We easily forget God's faithfulness, how he provides for his people, and how he grants grace to endure, offering the exit off the highway of sin, that we might escape into the secure arms of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In verses 1 through 5, Paul offers four cases of God's faithfulness to his people in the past, followed by a stern warning to the church today. Paul begins with a double, double negative. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers. And Paul's aim is not merely to inform, but to instruct, to offer something of essential nature with eternal consequences. Paul reminds us that our forefathers worshipped the same God and experienced salvation alone through God's redemptive work. It's always been the case that God rescues his people from the slavery of sinful idolatry. That was the same in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. And when Paul references the cloud, he's, he's speaking of this theophany, of this, this visible cloud that God sent to guide and protect Moses and the people as they fled Egypt, as they entered into the wilderness. And the sea, of course, is a reference to the Red Sea that God parted for his people to pass through and that God used to drown Pharaoh's Egyptian army. And notice the interesting phrase Paul uses, that the people are baptized into Moses, in the cloud and in the sea. To be baptized here means to be identified with. Only those who were identified with Moses' leadership and followed him found escape from Egypt and protection from the Red Sea. Moses was not the Savior, but the instrument of God for the deliverance of the people of God. And he serves as a a foreshadowing figure of the coming work of Christ, who is our ultimate deliverer and redeemer. The spiritual food Paul refers to speaks of the miraculous daily supply that God gave to his people to feed millions in the wilderness. And when the people cried out for water, God instructed Moses to strike the rock at Hebron, out of which outflowed an abundance of Of water to quench the thirst of every person and animal. No small task in a desert. But notice the peculiar phrase here in verse 4 where it says that the people drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. Jewish rabbis taught a legend that that same rock, Moses strikes in Exodus 17, actually rolled and followed them throughout the wilderness and from which God provided. The replenishment of water for those forty years well we don 't believe that Paul is necessarily endorsing that myth, but he 's using it to point to the very real presence of Christ that Christ was with his people to lead them by cloud by day and by fire by night to protect them and deliver them safely into the promised land. The book of numbers. Uh, writes about Moses' failure, and the second time when he struck the rock, when he failed to speak to it as God had commanded him, and most scholars interpret this to mean that, that Moses actually assaulted God's holy presence. As you may recall that on the first encounter of Moses striking the rock, God commanded him to strike the rock because God's presence would, be, would stood stand there on the rock. God himself absorbed the blow of the staff, the punishment the people deserved for their sin, rebellion, and unbelief. And so Paul makes the point that the rock was Christ. The rock is the name for God in many places in Scripture. And it's Christ who took the blow, who bore the punishment that you and I deserve, And so we are identified with God's people of old who are redeemed and saved alone through the work of Christ, who takes our punishment upon himself to wash away our sin of idolatry and unbelief. God was faithful to his people of old. Before they had done anything good, before they had earned anything, before they had even demonstrated their own faithfulness, God redeemed them for himself And yet, despite the freedom that God had granted his people, despite the abundant resources he gave them in the wild, that generation rebelled and displeased God, as verse 5 says. And most of them perished, their bodies scattered across the wilderness. Imagine that, more than one million people, an entire generation. Some have calculated that there must have been on average more than 100 funerals a day, burying bodies in the wilderness, save only Joshua, Caleb, and all those who were 20 years old or younger, a whole new generation that God raised up in the wilderness to prepare them for the entrance into Canaan. Now, I don't believe that Paul is saying that every single one of these people were condemned eternally, though many were in their unbelief and rebellion, and yet others no doubt repented and trusted in the Lord Almighty, even as they had to suffer the consequences along with their generation of those who refused to believe that the God who had overthrown the greatest empire on earth could lead them into Canaan to overwhelm and eliminate the formidable Canaanites. You know, I think it's tempting for us to question how are these people who had witnessed the great plagues in Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the water from the rock, the daily provision of manna could respond to God's mighty deeds with apathy, unbelief, and ingratitude. And the same could be said of the Jews in Jesus' day who saw his miracles, the way he ministered to people on their needs, and yet refuse to believe in him. It would seem that no amount of miracles and great signs and wonders would make a believer. Such is the stubbornness of the human heart. In the same way, no amount of reason or proofs or pleas will convince somebody of the truth unless the Spirit enables faith. This should humble us. This should lead each and every one of us to cry out for God's grace, to believe what we know to be true, and to act upon it. We need to be beware of the temptation to be presumptuous, which I believe is Paul's main concern with the Corinthian church, and he's drawing a parallel here to compare the Corinthian situation with their forefathers. Notice he, that those who were baptized in their escape from idolatry in Egypt who ate and drank of God's abundant provision for them in the wild. In the same manner, in a like manner, God's people have been baptized in Jesus Christ in the washing away of their sin, eating and drinking in the Lord's Supper to participate with God to express our faith and our repentance and our new identity in Christ. But just as Israel had taken for granted the signs and the wonders and the provisions of God. So we in the new covenant age can take for granted the church and the means of grace and the ways in which God continues to bless us with his word and preaching and the ministry of the sacraments. It's just as as tempting for us to go through the motions to give blind trust to mere ritual without deep personal faith in the living God, our true rock and redeemer. People can pray the prayer, walk the aisle, faithfully attend church, but none of these things save. Jesus Christ saves. And only those who trust in him by faith who repent of sin who lean upon him alone, not as a once-and-done act, but as an ongoing participation of faith and fellowship with the living God. Thus is the path of salvation in Christ. Now, in follow-up to these four provisions of God's faithfulness in Israel's history, there comes in the next section four warnings, also from Israel's history of Israel's faithlessness. The word "ex" verse 6 literally means type. And scholars think that Paul's means here a, a pattern type. It, it's, a, it's a paradigm, a model from Israel's history to guide the church and the believers for today. And you recall the horrific scene of idolatry and revelry where after Moses had been on the mountain for many weeks with the Lord, he comes down to find the the people have broken out into idolatry, having cast in a golden calf, like parents coming home to find the babysitter having thrown a wild party. Moses is astonished at Aaron, his brother, and his failure and his spinelessness in response to the idolaters around them. 3,000 people died that day. As zealous... Levites struck down the most brazen offenders among them. Then in verse 8, Paul appeals to the situation where Israelite men took up with Moabite women after the false prophet Balaam failed to curse Israel. He advised the Moabites to seduce Israel with cultic sexual behaviors. More than 23,000 people were cut down. And God's people not content with idols or immorality continued by putting God to the test on numerous occasions. And on one occasion, God responded by sending poisonous snakes to strike them. And many died. But then God was merciful to instruct Moses to create a bronze serpent, put it on a staff, and hold it up. And everyone who merely looked at the bronze serpent was healed. God is faithful to the faithless who repent. And Jesus, seizing on this image, declared that just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent of the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. And so it is the case that all who look to Jesus Christ, to the one crucified on our behalf, will be forgiven of their sins, trusting in his atoning sacrifice in our place. Lastly, Israel grumbled on many occasions against Moses and against God who responded with punishment again. And, and, and as, as these four rounds of, of cases against Israel, Paul is drawing the parallel of the Corinthian church, of idolatry and immorality, of testing and grumbling. These are the cycles of sin that have characterized God's people from the very beginning. Moses And Paul and spiritual leaders throughout the church's history have had to repeatedly deal with the people's propensity to false worship, to licentious behavior, responding to pastoral care with disrespect and complaining. And I believe this challenge is to you and I to think about how much are we like our forefathers and are we any better? And where do we need to repent to renew our worship? to renew our belief, our trust, our our respect and obedience in the Lord, to be what Paul, Paul proclaims to the Philippians, that we might do everything without complaining, grumbling, or arguing, but shine like lights in the world. Well, verses 6 and 11 serve as bookends around these warnings from Israel's history for the benefit of the church. And he says in verse 6 that these examples took place That we might not desire evil the way our forefathers did. The only way to rid ourselves of evil desires is to replace them with holy desires. The only way we can eliminate our love for sin is to replace it with the love of Christ. And God is faithful to give us the desires of our hearts. When we yield to him our heart, when we allow him to replace our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh that is tender and teachable to the word of God, God promises people to give them new circumcised hearts that are vulnerable, that are broken, that are self-aware, that are humble and dependent upon God, the one alone who meets our needs and who satisfies eternally. You know, there's really only two ways to learn things. Either you learn it on your own the hard way, or you learn it by the examples of others. Paul wants us to learn from the example of others. The wise learn from their own mistakes, but also others who learn by way of hard knocks. The Bible is full of examples. And Paul only picks a few here to instruct the church to help us flee idolatry. And that's, in fact, one of the chief characteristics of Scripture. Scripture. It's vulnerability. The Bible is not shy to expose the many flaws of our supposed heroes. And so these examples in verses 7 through 11, they're there not to puff us up in self-righteousness, that we're somehow better than they are, nor is it to lead us in despair because the failure of our forefathers to live up to God's standards, these examples should humble us. But they also should relieve us that we have a God who long suffers with his people and gives us opportunity after opportunity to repent, to renew the covenant, to turn away from false worship to true worship. You know, good parents want their children to learn from mistakes and to even learn from the parents' lessons of failure and past failures. You and I need a teachable heart like a child who repents of the pride of my way, who does not resent the faithful instruction of a God who truly does know better than we do. May God grant you and I a heart of wisdom. We might learn from our fathers of the faith to avoid the trappings of sin, to walk faithfully with Christ, even if imperfectly. Well, Paul comes to his summary statements in verses 12 and 13 pointing out to us the significance of these four provisions of God's people in the past as well as these four examples of faithlessness. And Paul says in verse 12, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. While we're up in in Ricketts Glen, there was one particular beautiful waterfall, one of the taller ones. At the very base, there was a very shallow pool filled with hundreds of stones and rocks, and you could walk across, and, and uh, you could get close to the waterfall, and you could get up underneath it. And you know, I calculated a hundred people could have walked across and not have taken the same path. And most of the rocks were sturdy and dry, but some of them were rickety, And others were slippery, and you couldn't tell just by looking at them which ones were safe to step on. So you had to kind of gently press down before entrusting that stone with all of your weight to measure it first. And those who just race on ahead and run across those rocks are likely to stumble and fall. But those who are patient, who measure it out, can arrive safely across. I believe the Christian life is like that that we need to be careful that we are standing upon solid ground lest we slip and fall on our way. Well, how do we know if we're standing on solid ground? Well, we come to this final verse about temptation. And as we examine this verse, I believe that, that there are echoes from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And I believe that temptation has at least three common characteristics. We have a temptation to independence from God, to doubt God's faithfulness, and lastly, to test God. We have an independent spirit in our fallen nature to want to go it alone. But Paul offers this first word of assurance that no temptation has overtaken you that is not uncommon to man. We go it alone, and then we find ourselves feeling alone in the midst of our temptations. Satan exploits our sense of isolation, leading us to despair. We need to know that our temptations are not unique. Believers of old and believers today all share the same common struggles with doubt and lust and fear and anxiety. And we need to counter our independent streak by learning to be God-dependent in the likeness of Christ who walked with his Father, who was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted and yet overcame sin every single time. In fact, Jesus knows our temptations more than we do. We we give in to our temptations so quickly and easily. Jesus endured temptation all the way to the cross. He knows your temptations. Abide with him depend upon him to be your faithful shepherd. Secondly, we are given to doubt God's faithfulness. And here in this this verse, Paul addresses it saying that we are not tempted, you will not be tempted beyond your ability. My oldest son got his driver's permit recently, and we did not take him out on the highway his first day with his permit. No, we started in the parking lot and we moved out to the neighborhood and we branched out, adding more challenges to coincide with his ability, maturity, and experience. In the same way, God is faithful not to overwhelm us and burden us beyond our ability. And yet, at times, we feel overwhelmed by our temptations. And we need to learn to doubt our doubts. Rather than trusting our feelings, we trust in God's goodness. Believing, as the text says, that he provides us the way of escape. When we find ourselves on the highway of temptation. Just as every defensive driving course teaches a young driver to look ahead, to watch for pitfalls, and to look for the easy path of escape, so God wants us to look ahead and trust him that we would not steer our way into entanglements with sin, but we would avoid them. But we know that sometimes, sometimes escapes are hard. Joseph learned that in Egypt. The three Hebrew young men in Babylon learned that in the fiery furnace. Sometimes it's uncomfortable to escape the pathways of sin. And yet in those situations, God gives us grace to endure it. We are never forced to compromise our integrity or yield to the temptation of sin. And so we overcome our independence and our doubts through faithfulness in Christ. But there's a third characteristic that I believe is Paul's dire warning here, and that's our characteristic to test God. Hopefully we are in avoiding temptations of sin, but there are some of us, all of us, who put ourselves in situations where we are very culpable for the temptations that seize us. If you are weak and vulnerable, you need to run and flee. Paul says to flee sexual immorality. He'll say after this passage, flee idolatry. If you go headlong into a tempting situation, you are culpable and you are tangling yourself up in sin. If gambling's a weakness for you, stay away from the casino. If alcohol is a weakness for you, stay away from alcohol. Whether it's the internet, whether it's movies, whether it's a certain group of people, you have to learn to flee. And learn to trust God to keep you on the pathway of righteousness and away from the highway of temptation and sin. New James says this about temptation that when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. You see the progression here. And we should never blame God for our temptations but take full responsibility for ourselves when we yield to temptation, but give God the praise and the glory when we overcome, by faith, when we see the escape and exit off that highway to sin. Just over a week ago, a friend of mine, the father of uh, a baseball player who played with my son this summer, was hiking up in the Danville area and fell. And he had to be airlifted out with a broken back and is in a hospital even now in the Danville area. He's paralyzed from the ribcage down. And we're not sure of the prognosis. We're praying that his paralysis will only be temporary and not permanent. I'm sad for my friend. And I'm praying for him. But I can tell you I'm even sadder For brothers of mine, even in our own presbytery, who have been caught in sexual immorality, who have had to demit the ministry, whose reputation has been shattered, whose marriage is on the rocks, by testing God, by getting too close to the edge and suffering for it, The mature believer does not abuse his freedom in Christ. By seeing as how close he can get to the edge and not sin, he stays as far away from it as possible. To faithfully walk with Christ the Good Shepherd. While my family was trekking along Ricketts Glen, there was safe in most places, but there were some pathways that were a bit narrow, and there were some edges with a steep and even deep drop-off. And I'm walking along at times with my two-year-old, And my father instinct set in and I start walking between him and the edge to make sure that he does not go near the edge. And then there were some rough spots where he stumbled and he very willingly let me carry him through the rough patches. I believe that's a picture of what God wants us to do here. To know and believe that God, our father, walks with us through the valley that he will protect us from the edge, that he will carry us when we are tired and exhausted, when we're needing his encouragement and support. And those who trust him, who abide in him, can have this confidence that you will not fall by putting away your independence, laying your doubts at the foot of the cross, by resisting the urge to test and tempt God, but rest in him, abiding in the vine, to walk arm in arm with the good shepherd, to flee sexual immorality, to run from idolatry and trust that God is faithful, that he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but indeed will provide the way of escape and help you to endure it as you follow Christ. Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ we have a sure salvation, that you are the rock our fortress, that you walk with us in the journey, that you keep us from falling. I pray that you would help us to be earnest, to flee from temptation, to hold fast to Christ and be the people who walk in the light as you are in the light. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.